This is Young Lawyer Rising from the ABA Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network. Welcome back, listeners. This is your host, Montana Funk. Today, Alexandra Graves joins us. Alexandra is an associate attorney for the law office of Bell & Bell in Fort Lauderdale, with a practice primarily focusing on estate planning, contracts, and equine law. Additionally, she's the deputy editor-in-chief of the YLD Publications. Today, Alexandra and I discussed how to maintain a healthy work-life balance, both in law school and practice, the importance of focusing on yourself, hobbies, and your health, while also growing as an attorney. Listeners, it's important to remember that life doesn't stop for us, so don't sweat the small stuff. Good afternoon, Allie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. Excited about talking to you. Yeah, I'm super excited about today's conversation. I think it's something really important that we need to discuss because it kind of ties in a little bit to a episode we had a couple of months ago with Richard Rivera. With him, we had kind of discussed some health issues that he faced while practicing and, you know, how he managed that and kind of used that to form you know, what his practice looked like before and after. And today, obviously, you have a different perspective because you went through some stuff in law school and writing the bar. And I mean, we know that our listeners just who are brand new to this just wrote the bar. They finished a couple of weeks ago. So I'm excited to kind of add on to that and talk about how things happen not only during practice, but also, you know, during our whole life. So if you don't mind kind of telling a little bit of your story, I would like our listeners to kind of just hear what I mean when I say you also kind of experienced something, but back a ways. Absolutely. So I was in my second semester of law school, second semester of my second year of law school, I should say. And it was like three days in and um, I found out I had a brain tumor and needed emergency neurosurgery. I had been having really bad headaches, just increasingly bad, but it was my 2L year and I was over-involved, working two jobs, full classes, on a journal, and so everyone attributed it to stress, which would have made a lot of sense. And then um, I kind of noticed some vision issues. I thought I maybe needed glasses, but when I went back to school, I was looking at the whiteboard in class and... It was like someone had a sheet of paper and they cut it in half vertically and shifted one side up a line. So I was seeing a word jumble and I came home and I told my lovely parents who are both physicians and they rightfully freaked out and told me, okay, we need to get you into a ophthalmologist like yesterday. So I went in thinking, okay, just, just need glasses. A bunch of people in my class just, you know, started needing glasses, going to law school. And no, it was a brain tumor. I got immediately sent for an MRI. I had 20-50 vision that was not correctable in either eye. I had lost all of my peripheral vision. So I was basically seeing with blinders on. And um, I ended up having neurosurgery about five days later, six days after that initial diagnosis. And I had to withdraw from a lot of my classes. I kept two. I was out of school for a month. The school encouraged me to completely withdraw, which I didn't want to do. I wanted to at least stay in, in two and kind of keep my brain going. And um, everyone was really great. And so it was a good situation in that aspect. Like my teachers were willing to work with me and they recorded my lectures. But it was pretty, it was a major thing to have happen in the middle of law school, which is stressful enough. And then I graduated a semester later than all my friends. I graduated in the December class, still the same year. 
But I was going into graduation and I had my checkup and I found out the brain tumor was regrowing and I was going to need neurosurgery again. And that just threw me for a loop. And so that was kind of my mindset going into bar prep was, okay, well, I'm going to have to face brain surgery after this bar exam. So I don't really care right now. But that's that's kind of the back story. So that obviously that's a very severe situation. And obviously that's very serious. And, you know, you got it during a time in law school, which I don't know what your school referred to it as, but we said over the hump. So your 2L year, you're kind of getting right over the hump. You're, you're kind of honestly in the grind of it being the hardest, right? Because you're past your 1L year where you're kind of getting used to everything. 3L's more kind of relaxed, you know, the grind, but 2L, you're right in it. So we'll kind of break it up into parts. But first, I kind of want to ask you, what was it like, you know, realizing, okay, I need to take a step back from law school right now, because I know we're so ingrained in study, study, study. We are, you know, 2L year, you're rounding the end, you're almost there, you have one year left. So I can imagine you had to kind of shift your perspective on how you were going to finish out law school knowing this. So how did that impact your trajectory for how you handled your last year and a half? Oh, wow. I mean, like I said, the school, they were like, are you sure you don't want to drop out of all your classes this semester? And I was like, no, I really want to stay in for at least two. I think I kept six credits. And it kind of hit me when I realized I wasn't going to graduate with all my friends that I had gone through orientation with. And, you know, the joys of the first year of law school when you're just trying to settle in. And so that was heartbreaking, but um, they offered me option of taking classes over the summer and I would have been able to graduate with my class, but I didn't want to miss out on the practical experience of working. And so I ended up doing an internship for the general counsel's office at the hospital that I had my surgery at. So that was kind of a full circle moment, but it really impacted me with that. I, I chose not to do the courses over the summer. I wasn't really interested in them. I wanted to stay and, you know, go that extra semester, take things I wanted to be in and get experience working. And so that that kind of shaped my law school career in that respect. But then, you know, when it came time to graduation, everyone was like, oh, you're so you must be so happy you're graduating. And I had just gotten this terrible news that it was regrowing. And I'm like, well, I mean, kind of. Sure. Bigger things going on in your mind, I'm sure, at that time, right? Exactly. Yes. So then you went into obviously your bar season and obviously having this news that your tumor was regrowing and now you're like, okay, now I'm facing graduation and then the bar, which is like the bar is, you know, everyone said the most daunting thing, which it's interesting because I, I'm sure, and obviously this is for you to speak on, but we go into the bar thinking that is like the worst thing of the summer, right? Like this bar is going to take up all my time and oh, I can't see any of my friends unless it's like late at night, maybe some weekends, but clearly for you, you had different priorities. So did it shift your mindset or ability to study or anything like that going into the bar, because clearly you had more important things than the bar at that time. You had your health. Absolutely. I was not in a good mindset um, studying for the bar the first time around. I, I failed it. I had a bar tutor provided me by the law school and she's like, oh, you know, are you stressed about the bar? And I was like, about the bar? No. She's like, well, you know, is this keeping? I said, no, this is not keeping me up at night. I said, this doesn't even crack the top five. I had so much else on my brain that my heart wasn't in it. I just didn't really care because, okay, even if I did pass it, I was still probably going to be facing neurosurgery again right after I got the news for it. So 
it totally just threw a wrench in studying. And everyone says, okay, well, you know, go lock yourself away to study for the bar exam. But life doesn't really give you that little bubble, the bar exam bubble. It still happens and it still comes crashing in. And that's what I got a, you know, crash course in, literally. Yeah. And when I failed the bar exam the first time around, I was devastated because I was like, okay, well, here I failed it and I'm facing neurosurgery. There is nothing good in my life right now. But then I found out that the tumor had stabilized some and I didn't need it that summer. And so when I went back to study for it again, my head was in the game and I kind of had a perspective shift with, okay, well, I know what to expect now. This is good. I'm not going to be shocked by walking into a large convention center. I know exactly what I'm getting into, what the time feels like. So I really tried to turn my first experience where I failed into a learning experience the second time around. And I was a lot more comfortable. I was not the one of the nervous people like, okay, where do I go? Where do I go to check in? I was like, okay, yeah, this is old hat right now. And so in that sense, getting the experience the first time around probably helped me pass it the second time. Uh, so that was, you know, trying to make lemonade, lemons out of lemonade. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, lemonade out of lemons or whatever that phrase is, right? But I think that that's a good point because I think going into the bar, right, everyone has this thought that if I fail, like that's the end all be all, right? Like that is the worst thing ever. And you're kind of showing it in a way that no one wants to fail at the bar the first time around, obviously. That's not a good feeling, but it's not the end all, right? And it you saw things that you were like, okay, actually I can learn from this and go into the second time and feel way more comfortable. So if you have anything, you know, to offer to our listeners who maybe did just write the bar or who are going to be graduating next year and they're going to be writing the bar about you know, the, the positive experiences you can take away and kind of saying, hey, look, failing isn't the end of the world. And the reason why you wanted to keep going, even though you had these health things going on and you failed, kind of what would you tell students who are scared about that or who maybe don't feel like they would want to write again if they did fail the first time? I feel like, you know, we stress, like you said, we stress so much the importance of passing the bar and it literally defines us. You've gone to law school and that's what you need to do to become an attorney. But I think there's so many people out there that have failed it or they know someone who's failed it. And it's not this awful stigma that should be shameful. And I think that's something that, you know, we need to acknowledge. The bar exam is hard. It doesn't matter what state you're in. It doesn't matter if you're taking the February bar or the July bar. They're going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And people are going to fail. And I think that we need to kind of normalize that and say, okay, it's going to happen. No one wants it to happen, but it will happen to you or someone you know in your legal career. And it doesn't mean that they're not smart. It doesn't mean that they made a mistake going to law school. It doesn't mean that they're not going to be a good lawyer. They had a bad day. Life gets in the way. I mean, people get broken up with before the bar exam. They you know, there was a story about someone who was pregnant and, you know, ended up delivering like right around when the bar exam was. And things happen. And I think that, like I said, they tell us you lock yourself up in a bubble, but that's not the best way to go about it. Because again, life doesn't care about your bubble. And so I think as well, that's where it comes into play with you have to take breaks when you're studying for the bar. So you don't burn out and you don't get to the point where you're so stressed and you put so much pressure on yourself that you're not going to remember anything when you get in there anyway. And so I just think we need kind of a, a mindset shift a little bit. I think so too. I, 
the whole entire time when you're in law school, everything is emphasis on the bar, right? Like you take your first year bar courses and then you take your second year and then third year, you're like, okay, now you can kind of calm down. You've taken all the necessary bar courses, but now prepare yourself because the calm before the storm, right? And life doesn't stop, right? So, I mean, a personal experience I have, this was not with the bar. Luckily it was with the LSAT, but I got the stomach flu the night before the LSAT. So then the whole entire time of, we had the one hour lunch break, I was in the bathroom the whole time. I was so sick. Right. And then it's like, you don't get a good LSAT score and you're disappointed with yourself, but you know, taking away from that. Okay. So I didn't get a good LSAT score, still going into law school, still pass the bar, still practicing. Right. So I think you're right in that there needs to be a mindset shift because it doesn't need to be the end all be all if you don't get the score that you want, or it's not, you know, higher than your classmates, but it's still a passing score. The point is, is that you can overcome things. And like you said, life is not going to care that you're studying for the bar, right? Like life is not going to be like, oh, you have to study today. Well, you won't get sick. I'm just going to hold off on that. That's not how it works. So I'm curious, you know, obviously this impacted your law school and the bar, but did this also impact your priorities and what you wanted when you were looking for an actual career after passing the bar? Without a doubt. You know, I was 27 when I was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and that's a great age to get some perspective like this. Hopefully no one else gets it the way I did, but, you know, it'll happen. And I just prioritize what was important in my life. I knew that I didn't want to be in a crazy corporate job with billable hours. And I know there are people who thrive in that and love it, and that's wonderful for them. But I knew that wasn't for me. I rescue animals. I live on a horse farm. I just rescued a donkey who ended up being pregnant. I have a baby donkey. I want to <laughs> spend time with my animals. I wanted to take a job where I was close to my family especially if I need surgery again in the future. And I wanted to ideally work from home, which I do. And I just, I had gotten a job offer out of law school, but I heard the particulars of it and I knew it was not going to be a good fit for me. It was going to be more stress than it was worth. And so you just kind of figure out a different way of prioritizing things in your life and what is actually important. And yeah, I might be making less than what I should or could be earning, but I'm so much happier. I'm in a spot where I know that if I do have surgery, where I will be out three to four weeks, I could do it and it wouldn't be a problem. I work in a small firm and I have great clients. I like what I do. And so I wanted flexibility and I got it. But, you know, you can graduate and not have a job offer and that's okay. I graduated and I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I went back for my LLM graduated from the LLM and I still, that was in the middle of COVID, right when it was starting. And so we finished it up on Zoom and I had no idea what it was going to do. And I ended up getting a job with, like I said, this small solar practitioner who needed some help. And that has slowly turned into something that I am very proud of and very happy to be involved with. And that wouldn't have happened probably any other way. So I think that that's also a really good thing to touch on is kind of choosing a job and how your path of what you think you're going to do can change. I want to talk about that a little bit more after the break. We're going to jump to a break right now. And then when we come back, we'll dive into that a little bit. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, 
review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. So before the break, we were talking about, like you had said, you had an offer out of law school and you didn't take that. I think it's important for our listeners, whether or not they're already in a job and they're wanting to go a different path or they're just graduating and they're like, I don't know what I want to do yet. What would you tell attorneys or law students or young lawyers who are maybe thinking they had an idea of what they wanted as a job and you know everyone around them's like that's the highest paying that's like the best law firm in our area and they're thinking I need to stay here or I need to take that job but maybe deep down that's not what they want to do I think you have to listen to that deep down feeling I mean that was my my biggest piece of advice if it doesn't feel right I mean, yeah, you can always quit a job. You're never going to be locked in. And so you do have that flexibility. But if you know from the get-go that it's not something that you really think is going to be a good fit, I think it's worth it to keep looking for something else that is. I think you need to be open to different experiences. I graduated law school and I was like, I just want to do transaction work. I never want to be in court. And I was just in the courtroom sitting as co-counsel a month ago. And I was like, I could do this. I could do a better job than the guy who's up there. (laughs) And so you have to be open. I didn't think I would be doing some of the areas of law that I'm doing right now. I dabble with a little bit of everything. I work for a general practitioner. I mean, I have a tax LLM. I don't really use it, but I'm happy I have the knowledge. And so I think you just have to look at things holistically. It's not just about the salary. It's not just about the location. It's not just about the prestige of the firm. You know, you have to look at, okay, where is it? Am I going to be happy living there? Am I going to be near family if I want to be near the family? What are their hour requirements? What is my working life going to look like? And I think that's a really big conversation to have. Like I said, I have horses, so I have a very different schedule and I basically have another job at home taking care of them. And so I looked at hours like, okay, well, if I'm driving here, how much of a commute is that going to be? How much time, like, when am I going to feed? Am I going to feed them at 4 a.m. so that I can be, you know, at work at 7 or 8, whatever. And so you have to look at the big picture. It's not just about the salary and it's not just about the prestige. And I think also it's, this is going to come off harsh, but I think it's true that 
we're replaceable. You know, I, I think that that's something that we also need to focus on, not in like a terrible sense, not saying that, oh, you're replaceable, you're not a good attorney or ah, there's tons of us out there. The point is, though, at the end of the day, if life happens, whether it's in law school or like Richard, Richard, when he was actually practicing, things happen, right? Whether it's your family, yourself, your health. And I, I want people and I want our, listener, our listeners to be mindful that I think also to have a successful practice and be a good attorney, you need to have that balance. Because if you don't, you're either going to burn out before you even start practicing. Like maybe if you would have been like, I'm going to put my health on the back burner, who would have know? Who knows what could have happened, right? So you need to kind of focus on, like you said, what are your priorities? Do you want to be close to family? Do you have hobbies? Like, I, I think if I'm correct, you're an artist and, and that's an awesome hobby, right? Do you have time for those things? Because at the end of the day, if you need to leave or something happens, they're going to find another one of you. So you need to focus on yourself because you only have one of you. Oh, absolutely. You you are the only you that's out there. Attorneys are a dime a dozen. And so, you know, if you can't do someone's will, they're going to find someone else who can. But if you're not there when you need to be for a loved one, for yourself, for your, your own health, your well-being, your mental state, then you don't have anything else to pull from. And so you just have to look at your life beyond your career and figure out, okay, what is genuinely going to make me happy? And yeah, I mean, money is always nice and that's a big part of it, but it's not the whole picture. And I think that, you know, we need to branch out from that and look at being just being happy as a way to be a better lawyer as well. And yeah, I am an artist and I got back into it because of the brain tumor. And I realized that, hey, I kind of lost a lot of my vision. I got most of it back from the surgery. I didn't say that before, but um, I just realized, okay, well, life is short and I don't want to go through this again. And I have the time now to do it. So I want to do it. And so I've been able to show and exhibit and it's fun being able to put on another hat outside of the legal field. And so it's kind of a nice relief. Everyone's like, wait, you're also a lawyer wait, and you're an <laughs> artist. And it's just like, yeah, they're two totally different parts of my brain and helps me to not burn out in you know the one aspect. And it gives me a creative release in the other. So do you think that there's anything to be said about having this balance that you do have? Have you noticed because you have this balance, anything that's impacted the way that you practice in the terms of you actually feel like maybe you are stronger in an area of practice because you give yourself that balance? I think empathy. I think empathy with my clients, understanding what they're going through. I can have conversations with them about a variety of things just because I'm not just wearing the lawyer hat. And so I think it makes me more personable. It makes me seem less like, okay, you're just an attorney who wants my money. It makes me seem like a person. And I think that your clients, the ones who come back to you, they want to connect with with you on a personal level and feel that they have something in common. And so I think it helps me with that because I've gotten clients in the horse world because I'm a horse person and I have a neighbor who needed a boarding contract for horses. And I was like, yeah, I can help you with that. And so it's word of mouth in that respect as well. I also think too, something that we haven't mentioned yet, but if we have any listeners who are sitting here and they're like, oh, I don't know that I'm, you know, that able yet to separate myself from the job or maybe some young attorneys who are in their first or second year and they're working for a big firm and they're like, okay, I want to make sure I'm hitting my billables. How else can I balance 
life and enjoy myself and also, you know, exceed in my career. I think another good way to do that, I don't know if you have any experience with this, but even getting out and doing young lawyer events, like going and finding mixers in your town or going to a dinner with people or coffees with other attorneys, because you can also still excel in your career by also enjoying some things or going on your lunch break, or if you need to work, go to a coffee shop and do research, stuff like that. So do you have anything that either you would add on to that or anything you can echo off of that? Because I want to make sure we're also providing resources or ideas to our listeners who may be a little bit more weary about taking off too much time to how they can also be maintaining that life balance, but also still working. Yeah, for sure. I am involved with the Young Lawyers Division with the ABA. I'm deputy editor-in-chief of their publications and it's volunteer work, but it's connected me with a nationwide network of attorneys. And that's been amazing. And it's a way, it's still legal related. It's still related to my career. It's still things I can put down on my resume, but it's not work necessarily. It's not, okay, I have to talk to this client. Okay, did I bill the correct amount for this? It's not that, but it's still, I'm making professional connections. I'm networking. And who knows where those connections could end up down the road. And so for me, I live in an area where we don't really have a, you know, an active YLD section or young lawyers division, especially for someone like me who works remotely from home. I don't really have a network of attorneys necessarily in my area. So that's kind of where my involvement with ABA has come in. It's given me that network and other people that I can talk to about some of the issues that I'm going through. In addition to like my law school friends, of course, but that's just been a breath of fresh air because everyone involved wants to be there. And so I think it's a different mindset as well. And it's one where it's like, okay, yeah, this, you know, it's a decent amount of time, but we're all happy doing it and we love doing it. So it's, but it's still professionally related. So I can, you know, feel good about it. (laughs) Yeah. There's still ways that you can balance maintaining your career you growing in your career, but also giving yourself that time to kind of step back and not be like, this is a deadline that I have to meet or something like that. And I think that's just important too, that there's, it might look different for everyone having that work-life balance and it doesn't have to be one way. It doesn't have to be, oh, you have to go do a hobby or you have to take off the evenings, right? There's definitely different ways. Um, and I, I kind of want to ask a, a little bit of a loaded question to you. So I apologize for throwing this one at you, but now reflecting, obviously you've been in practice for a couple of years. If you could go back and tell yourself and your classmates before you were diagnosed with a brain tumor, one thing that you've learned about you know, balancing or changing your mindset, something that has helped you grow as an individual as well as your career, what would you tell yourself and those classmates? Oh boy, okay. I would tell them, don't sweat the small stuff. I mean, that was the biggest thing that I came out of this with. It's like, okay, you know, 10 years from now, no one is gonna remember if you got a C on an exam. Like, ask me what I got on any of my grades in my finals in law school. I don't remember. I remember the classes I booked just because I have an award for them. (laughs) But I don't remember any of the other grades. I don't remember any of my bad grades or my good grades. And I think that, you know, telling people to skip holidays or skip celebrations for life's little moments is a mistake. I think that, you know, you're going to regret that if you lock yourself in law school, in bar prep and don't and miss out on things that you're never going to get back. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, down the road, we talked about this yesterday when you and I had spoken, just us two. And when we're older and when we're done our practice, 
we're not going to look back and be like, oh, I remember that week I put in like 70 hours, right? We're going to look back and remember the times we spent with family. And that's not to say to people who are in law school, like don't try hard and don't do your best or people who are practicing miss deadlines. Like absolutely not. It's just to say, be the best version of yourself. Try your best. Don't let things bring you down, such as, like you said, a bad grade, or, you know, if you didn't get the score on the bar you wanted, or you don't have a job offer because you can still become a great attorney and be a great student and lawyer while also having that balance. And I think that that's more of, you know, what you're saying and what I'm hearing is you can have a good life outside of work while also still being successful. And like you said, don't sweat the small stuff because life doesn't stop. It doesn't stop for our practice. It's never going to stop. So do things that still make you happy. Exactly. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head with everything there. Like, yeah, absolutely. I'm not telling people like, oh, don't study for your exam. Don't study for the bar. You know, like you said, miss a deadline. Not that at all. But when you lose yourself and that's all you can see getting up, going to bed, I mean, that you need to take a step back and be like, okay, I need to carve out five minutes, 10 minutes for yourself. It doesn't have to be a hobby. It doesn't have to be a long trip. It just has to be, you know, kind of mental check-in like, okay, am I still, you know, doing something for me occasionally? And it's just make sure you don't miss things that you're going to regret missing out on. Yeah. Take a moment and actually look at life around you outside of work because lots of cool things are happening. So don't miss those. <laughs> There's also some not, not cool things happening, but focus on the cool things, right? So the last question, this is what the easy one that I always ask everyone. Tell our listeners where they can find you. Okay. Well, they can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Alexandra Graves on there. My firm does not have a website, but that would be the best way or via email, esq. 1218 at gmail.com. Perfect. And give your donkey a nice little pet for me. That sounds adorable. I have some pictures I need to go stare at again after this, but thank you so much for joining us. It's been super helpful and hopefully our listeners can take away from this that, you know, that they get to enjoy themselves and enjoy life while also still focusing on work and you can have that balance and it still will be okay. So I appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you. All right, listeners, we're going to take a break and head over with Julie Marrow, who's going to give us an update on pop law stories that we've covered throughout this year. This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Starting a new career in the law can feel overwhelming. The ABA YLD provides resources, CLE, and a network of peers from coast to coast to help you settle into your new legal career. Claim your Young Lawyer membership for just $75 at ambar.org join. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple.
it sounds like we got some updates on some of the pop law cases we've discussed throughout this last bar year. Hi, yes, we have. And hi, everyone. I'm your host, Julie Marrow, and welcome to Pop Law, where pop culture meets the law. And to cap off the bar year here, we are going to just update a few of our cases we discussed this year that um, have actually had some rulings or some news. Pretty exciting stuff. I want to start off with the Prince photos. This spring, the Andy Warhol estate lost big in the Supreme Court. And quick backstory, Lynn Goldsmith took this very famous photo of Prince back in 1981, I think it was. Andy Warhol had repurposed the photo, made a orange version out of the photo, and his estate sold those photos to Vanity Fair when Prince passed. They put it on the cover, and then the lawsuit started. Goldsmith's family said, well, that, that's her copyrighted photo from the 80s. And the Supreme Court agreed, and this was all uh, based on the fair use doctrine which is most people have probably heard of, but you don't really get in the nitty gritty of it. And it's the principle that some things, even though they may be copyrighted, we could still use them. The last time the Supreme Court had ruled on the fair use in art was in 1994, and it was concerning a rap rendition of the song Pretty Woman, which was very popular in the 1960s. And so something like that, that is so common and popular, and you're able to still use to an extent without being on the hook for copyright infringement. But the Supreme Court said that just essentially they sort of changed, it's almost like putting a filter on these photos and then changing the overall color of them. So maybe they have a blue screen, a purple screen, but the photo of Prince was still the same. And the Supreme Court said it also came down to the transformative purpose that the Warhol estate was arguing the photos were used for. Didn't really have that argument, didn't have a lot of merit because the the use at the end of the day was still commercial use for a magazine, just how when Lynn Goldsmith took the photo back in the 80s. And so this apparently, and I'm not a, a big uh, art news or legal art I don't follow the legal news in the art field, but I guess that the art industry has been following the SCOTUS case very closely and is very happy with the ruling. And it uh, was quoted as a huge win for the art and creator community. That's really interesting. So I'm looking on Google just because I wanted to see the picture for myself. And it looks like the original picture may have been full bodied. And it looks like the one that was in dispute is just his head. And I'm seeing so many different versions of that picture that it's actually funny. Like there's one image that shows, oh, maybe 15 different images of that one, just completely different, you know, color. And even there's so like different shading and stuff. So it's interesting to just see how many times it actually kind of was redone more so than I'm assuming this one lawsuit was, you know, involving because there's tons there's sketches there's you know him in different directions so it looks like people have really kind of taken that photo and done even more than those 14 silkscreen prints right yeah I noticed that too and I think the 14 silkscreen prints is what was on the cover of Vanity Fair or in Vanity Fair Mm -hmm. but there's uh, yeah I've noticed that when you google it there's a lot of renditions of it and I and it's like well you have to have draw the line somewhere in order to protect the original art and the photographer and that's another thing that is kind of strange now arguing about this today because back then I I think it would have been more of a you know photographers don't really have some of the clout they used to because you know to take a photo like that and capture it of prints back then was a much larger deal than I think Mm -hmm. taking a a photo of a, a celebrity and today would be so I think I think that's a good call I think the Supreme Court made the right 
decision and it sets some precedent for some of these older, you know, classic photos and, and um, things like that, that their copyright will still remain with them. Yeah, no, I think that that's awesome. And I, I agree that that's probably a huge win for the art community. Like I, like you said, I don't really have a ton of involvement in the art world, legal art world, but it sounds like that is kind of the right decision, especially, like I said, just Google shows so many different variations. So it's nice that that original creator will get to keep the rights to that. Right. Good for Goldsmith and rest in peace, Prince. Yeah. Our <laughs> next, our next update is about the Madison Square Garden plaintiff's lawyers ban and it's as goofy as it sounds in my opinion but back in before the holidays um, MSG and a few of its uh, parent or other I don't know if you call them parent sister venues uh, Radio City Music Hall and the Beckham Theater all banned any lawyer who worked at a plaintiff's firm who was in litigation with MSG or one of its sister companies and you can imagine you're in New York City, and this affected over 95 law firms. And so you're right before the holidays, and now these so people have bought tickets and they can't go to these events. And so we've had a little bit of news there that uh, MSG is can ban the plaintiffs' lawyers from sporting events at Madison Square Garden or the other venues, but the sporting events are the only thing that they're allowed to do that with. Part of why this got blown up so much and a lot of people were upset about it was this facial recognition technology that they use to recognize people and flag them basically whenever they come into one of their venues. And I think that the whole invasion of privacy with that was what upset a lot of the plaintiff's lawyers initially. So now MSG will pay $500 per person per instance where they are denied from a concert or show and the plaintiff's lawyer in this case is also able to press charges that are the equivalent of a misdemeanor against um, MSG if they are denied entry to anything other than a sporting event. So that's kind of funny. It's very little progress and I'm really interested to see where this ends up. I have a question for you if you know. Do you know why they're limiting it to just sporting events? No, I really don't know. Yeah, that's it's interesting to me. And I wonder if maybe because the events, the sporting events that take place at those places are maybe more, um, ni- I don't want to say niche, but specific, right? Like if a concert is going on, usually that artist is touring all around the country. So I wonder if because certain teams play there, that's just like the home team. I wonder maybe that's why. But it's interesting because I wonder if you know, other people, like, I wonder if any other teams who are visiting are going to get involved in this saying that maybe it's limiting their ability to make sales if people are being banned. Right. I just, it'll be interesting to me, I guess, to see where this goes in the next year and the implications. It just kind of seems crazy that everybody involved with litigation against MSG is going to be banned from sporting events. It kind of just seems a little bit wild to me, but what do I know? Yeah, it, it is pretty wild, and their justification, and you know, you have both sides of it. It's like, well, why would you invite someone into your home who's suing you? Well, they're also a paying customer, and yeah, the whole thing is, I just, I don't think it's the correct approach from a business standpoint or a goodwill standpoint, but I, I think most of the state authorities also agree, because the state liquor authority in New York has been trying to ban the liquor license from MSG and the judge said a couple of months ago that that was um, overstepping 
the the liquor board's authority, but I think they're still pursuing it, appealing that, trying to um, really hit hit MSG where it hurts. I was going to say, <laughs> hit the fans yeah, hit, where it hurts. <laughs> yeah, and so people are throwing a fit of, well, I have these tickets to this game, and and um, there's no alcohol sales, and you know, to each their own. But um, one thing I did think was interesting, and I could see where this, either MSG will pay some additional fines or they will have some of their tax structure reworked with uh, the city of New York and the budget office because the New York budget office issued a report recently, and I don't know if this is done intentionally or it's just a coincidence, but it showed that the Yankees, the Mets, and the Barclays Center pay a combined $167 million a year and the equivalent of property taxes in some way or another, and MSG pays nothing. Wow. <laughs> I don't know how they exactly got that arrangement, but I think that's sort of from going forward. It, the couple of articles I read, it sounds like that's what the lawyers are going to try to take to the bank and say, you know, okay, that's fine. But if you, if, and it makes sense, if you're getting some kind of tax break and all, then you do have more of an obligation to the public. And you, I don't think, have as much free reign as a typical business owner to exclude or discriminate against certain customers that you don't want in your business if you're, you know, receiving some tax and state benefits you sort of put yourself in a different category. Yeah, I mean, this story is just really interesting to me. I'm, I'm also kind of curious about how they're going to prevent new hires that are involved in these companies who are suing from being there, you know, especially with, how would you know if someone joined the team and then decided to go to a, a game, right? So it's, yeah, it's interesting, but I guess we'll have to see maybe in a couple of months, we'll have another update and there'll be something new on that side of things. Yeah, and, and I think that's, what really stirred this up to in the beginning was the ban is so broad. It's supposed to be anyone who is a lawyer at a plaintiff's firm that is representing the plaintiffs in a lawsuit against MSG. And that's a huge slew of people, obviously. And the, I think the first woman that was thrown out after about 20 minutes in the in the MSG arena, she was asked to leave and she had no idea about the ban. She didn't, you know, she doesn't work on these cases or anything like that. And I really also wonder how they enforce this, just like innocent people buying. I mean, guess now, you know, this has been going on for over six months. People are aware of it or expected to be aware of it. But from the outset, I thought, you know, how would you even know something like this would be a possibility if you're not, you're not even aware that your firm is doing some litigation against Madison Square Garden. Yeah, exactly. And also probably not the best feeling in the world to be in a big crowd being thrown out for reasons that you don't even know, let alone, you know what I mean? Like it's always a big spectacle. Usually when people get asked to leave a sporting event, usually it's because of other reasons, but so it's just interesting. Right. <laughs> I, I wonder, but maybe the liquor laws, if they do get taken away, would help that too. <laughs> so who knows? Yeah, that's true. Maybe we could fix a lot of issues with this, <laughs> but yeah, we'll see. Maybe we'll have something on that later. I think this will continue on for a while before they reach some settlement. And like I said, I haven't seen anything about this, uh, the property tax issue before, but I think that's because the New York Independent Budget Office issued that report. It wasn't too long ago. Yeah. Okay. Well, can you tell me a little bit about, I think we were talking about sports too earlier this year. Yes. Right. And the NIL laws. I know. And it's been a little exciting this summer. There are kind of multiple updates with the um, NIL laws, name, image, likeness, it's your ability to be compensated for 
your likeness, your reputation for people using your your name, your photo. And as you, I mean, we've joked, I'm like, yeah, I bet our NIL is worth <laughs> a whole lot, Montana. But, no, no one has but, my name or picture anywhere. Yes. Yeah, so I think most people have heard about it sometime at some point with uh, this idea that schools profit so much off of college athletes that you have these star players. They come in, you can, you know, you sell tickets, you sell memorabilia, whether you're supposed to sell um, jerseys. And it's the whole idea of like they're making all of these money, all this money off of these kids, in a sense, college kids. And then you have some of these college athletes that are trying to find their next meal or living off granola bars and just uh, little lopsided. So that all changed uh, when the NCAA said, sure, you can get you know, paid to play pretty much is the the term, which is not how it's supposed to be and not actually how it uh, works out in in, uh, real time. But there's just been a lot of issues with that. You have college athletes getting paid essentially sort of under the table. There's been deals made, you know, with a lot of conditions attached. There's been offers from businesses to have partnerships with them. And like I said, a lot of conditions attached that, and it's putting these put these college athletes in a really difficult position legally, financially, all of that. So this summer they had some issues with some of the um, NIL laws or the NCAA rules were conflicting with state laws, and so trying to sort that out as far as booster contributions and sort of like a lot of it comes down to contract law and to also like the benefits that you are required to offer these athletes if they are sort of employees and very convoluted. But a few things that we have found out this summer, they decided that NIL contributors cannot meet. So if you're contributing, how this is all working, these schools have collectives, Every or not every school, but some of the schools have collectives or like a trust. And that is where sort of this NIL money is paid into that is offered to the athletes. And they just want that to be a very generalized thing, sort of until you are really committed on campus and you're working with the athletic programs. And... Um, all of that. So schools can't discourage um, certain academic majors, certain programs. Um, if they are offering, if athletes are taking over 15 credit hours uh, per semester, they have to offer them financial literacy courses. Uh, there's uh, some talk with healthcare, how I mentioned before, and Congress has put out its third bill this summer to regulate NIL. There's been You've maybe seen in the news, but there's been a lot of a a call to Congress from the sports fans, especially to say, you have to regulate this. Uh, We have to have some some clear rules for these athletes. So Congress has said that athletic departments generating over 20 million dollars annually will be required to establish a trust for I thought this was interesting. It's for injury related medical expenses, which is really great because you have, you know, you can have someone who had a lot of potential. They get they have a, a really awful, what could be permanent injury or something that will, will allow them to, will prohibit them from pursuing a professional career. And so they'll have, have to establish trust for the injury-related expenses. Also, athletes are not going to lose their NCAA status if 
they are still finishing their undergraduate degree. So this comes into play whenever the term declaring for the draft early, you choose to forego um, the remainder of your collegiate career to hopefully go play professionally. And if you go undrafted, you'll have seven days that you can still go back and, and re-enroll as a, a student without using your, and even though this isn't really an NIL thing, but I think that's a big win for the athletes. And that's also important in all of this, that part of the appeal of declaring for the draft early is the financial side of it. So it's like Mm -hmm. maybe if we give them an option to um, come back, finish their degree, if the draft doesn't pan out. And there's more rules on how contributors of these collectives and, and boosters, essentially, the type of interactions, involvement, guarantees they're allowed to have with and make to athletes before they uh, actually are committed to the school. And that's how I said at the beginning that allowing this concept of paid to play, but not actually having that be the reality of you're paid to essentially go somewhere to play sports. That's what they've been trying to avoid from the outset. So it's interesting too. I think that's an ongoing issue and it will obviously that's been moving this year, but it's moving very slowly. And I think I'm sure it will be quite a while probably before there's a solution that makes everybody as happy as they can be. I'm sure not everyone will be happy at the end of the day, but it looks like it's moving hopefully in the right direction, at least with that healthcare stuff. But it'll be, you know, interesting to see what actually happens in the upcoming years. So we'll we'll see. I think you're right that it's moving, it's slowly moving. Hopefully we'll see some some better updates. But I guess it's one of the things maybe we can touch back with our uh our other stuff later on in the year about this one as well. I think so. I think that's about all we have for this year. Well, I appreciate you coming on today and giving us these updates. Hopefully we'll have some updates and I'm sure tons of new stories as the year goes on. So thank you. Yep. That sounds good to me. We'll look out for some more updates and see what we can bring you next bar year. But thank you all for joining us. I'm your host, Julie Marrow, and this is Pop Law, where pop culture meets the law. Well, listeners, that's a wrap. I want to thank Alexandra Grace for joining us. And thank you, as always, for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please recommend our show to a friend. We can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts. Until next time, I am Montana Funk, and you've been listening to The Young Lawyer Rising, brought to you by the ABA Young Lawyers Division and the audio professionals at Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.